I got amazing service in Hong Kong giving birth to my child with like extra medications for like strep B and an epidural and the whole nine. And I paid a fraction. I paid it. I paid it on my octopus card. It's like a little card that we used to get on the train and to open our apartments and stuff because it has RFID. I paid for my hospital stay. So four days in the hospital on my octopus card. And they also gave me like vitamins and stuff to take home with me, all included. And so it really just doesn't make sense to me why the States has to cost so much when it's like everywhere else has the same equipment and is doing it and it's subsidized by the government and it's, you know, it's covered and you pay like a menial fee. Hey everyone, welcome to Flourish in the Foreign, the award-winning podcast that elevates, celebrates, and affirms the voices and stories of Black women living and flourishing abroad while exploring living abroad as a pathway to wellness. I'm your host, Christine Job, a Black American and Trinidadian woman based in Spain. I am not only an award-winning podcaster, but I'm also a business strategist extraordinaire, if you will, that helps Black women and women of color leverage their brilliance, their expertise, their talents, and their skills into viable, sustainable, and impactful businesses. Businesses that make them not only professionally fulfilled, but also financially abundant while they pursue thriving lives abroad. If that sounds like something you're interested in, go ahead and check out my personal website at christinejob.com. And for those of you that are interested in the Move Abroad with Intention course, stay tuned to the end of this episode for more information on how you can join me live. So as you all know, and for those of you who are new, welcome. Flourish in the Foreign is a labor of love, but labor nonetheless. And so I ask you to please support this solo podcaster. Yes, I am an indie solo podcaster. I don't got a team. It is all me all the time. I'm hoping that is going to change soon though. <laughs> So please support this here podcast. You can support the podcast by going to buymeacoffee.com slash flourish foreign and buying me a coffee. You can also purchase an item off the flourish in the foreign wish list, which is a list of absolutely necessary production tools and software. If you don't know how much it costs to run a podcast, go ahead and just take a look at this wish list and it'll start giving you an idea of how much it costs to run your own podcast. So again, if you'd like to support the podcast in that way, go to buymeacoffee.com slash flourish foreign. You can also support the podcast by subscribing to this podcast on whichever platform that you listen. Be sure to rate the podcast five stars and leave a review. Let me know and the world know why you like Flourish in the Foreign. It means so much to me personally, but also it helps with visibility and discoverability. So please go ahead and leave review for Flourish in the Foreign. 
Also, it is so important for you to share the podcast, share it on your IG, your Twitter, your Facebook, your Mastodon, your LinkedIn, all of the things, your Pinterest, what have you. Please share this podcast. Do not gatekeep this podcast. Share with all the people that you know and let them be inspired by all of these amazing Black women. All right. Thank you so much for your support. I deeply appreciate it. On to the next episode. Today's episode is all about pregnancy abroad. Yes, something that I personally have not experienced, but I have quite a few past podcast guests that have experienced pregnancy abroad. And I believe this topic is super important to share. And that's why I created this compilation about various guests' experiences being pregnant abroad. As Black women, particularly in the United States, our maternal death rate is shockingly high. And I know this is a subject that is very interesting to all of you especially if you're considering moving abroad and maybe expanding your family while abroad, or perhaps you're just like me, just very curious about the whole thing. I know that you will really enjoy this episode. And if you do, be sure to DM me and let me know so I can create more compilations like this, or you can let me know what you want to hear next. Okay, I'm going to let the amazing women of Flourish in the Foreign tell you all about being pregnant abroad. In season one, episode 28, Roxana describes her and her husband's IVF journey in Singapore. I will disclose that me and my husband are actually going for infertility treatments. We're doing IVF in Singapore and we started this journey in Hong Kong, although we never sought treatment in Hong Kong. So that has been our biggest connection to any kind of difficulties being abroad. And I will say this, Singapore is brilliant in terms of the medical treatment that we've received here. It's been great. It's been one of the best parts about making the decision to move here because I know that in the UK, although we would have paid to go private, the National Health Service do IVF and it would have been a long journey. A lot of people that I have spoken to who have gone through it the waiting times and the expense and the difficulty has put a real strain on their relationships over here. And I think the fact that we're in Singapore and we're able to go through this really difficult period means that it's it's made meant that Singapore, in a sense, and the structures it has here have saved our marriage and made us more resilient. I'm not sure if we could have done this if it wasn't for living in Singapore. So dealing with infertility here, you always think about the option of adopting. The UK is the only country that Singapore doesn't allow to adopt. So the UK doesn't recognize Singaporean adoptions. And as such, Singapore will not allow British couples to adopt here. So that's super stressful on the other side of things, right? Because if we wanted to adopt, we wouldn't be able to while we lived here. We'd have to go back home or move to another country. That's quite stressful. So that puts a bit more pressure on the whole infertility stuff. but. Yeah, this is the big thing in our marriage. So anything moving abroad or having to deal with like other currencies or other food is just, you know, eclipsed by the fact that we're also dealing with infertility. So it's a really difficult question to answer without mentioning that. 
Can you imagine being black and living in Asia and going through infertility treatments and they have to explain to you, oh, well, I don't know if you know much about infertility, but you create these embryos and if they're successful and you have like, any left over, you can choose to donate them to other women. And it's really funny watching the doctor kind of say that to you, knowing full well <laughs> that no woman is going to choose to have a baby that's a completely different race to them. There aren't that many black women who need spare embryos in Singapore. So it's really funny to have these conversations. And on the flip side, them saying, well, embryo adoption is available to you. And it's like, oh, I'm not sure if it would be. You know, I wouldn't mind. But, you know, is a Singaporean woman going to allow her embryos to be birthed by a mixed race couple who are planning to go back to the UK? It's really funny. So in the infertility world, race is a huge conversation that's just started because of the protests so online on the forums people are talking about race certain things are you know quite apparent when you're doing it in a country where everyone is pretty much a different race to you that's not something that people talk about i'm talking about it now because i think it's important to talk about it i'm trying to normalize talking about it I asked Roxy to share some advice for anyone that is embarking on an IVF journey. I would say, no matter who your doctor is, what their accolades is, always be your own advocate. I have read some research and I'm not a scientist. I'm not a doctor. And anyone who is doing IVF has probably read lots of research papers. There are certain tests for which Black women are not in the norm because of the fact that we're black women. So sometimes you have to get your doctors to order tests that they wouldn't routinely order. You, you know, just do your own research and always be your own advocate. Don't give everything to your doctors. In saying that, Dr. Google sometimes is the worst. So you don't have to constantly, constantly be online Googling things because that is the temptation. The next thing is I've been trying to conceive for a long time but I've tried and I always advocate to treat everything like a clean slate so if you've been doing something for a year and it's not worked and the doctor or you have discovered this might be a diagnosis or this might be the reason then treat that as the first day you know everything is a clean slate every step is a different step the next is Keep yourself super busy because IVF is long. It's a long process. I think I'm quite lucky in that I'm not so emotionally attached to the idea of having children. I'm doing it because I want to have children, but there are people in this community, in the infertility community, who have real struggles with the idea of being childless. I, I find it sometimes quite difficult to connect with people in the IVF community online particularly obviously these are faceless people but things like mm, we should abolish mother's day because it makes us feel insecure about the fact that we're not mothers or you know we should abolish pregnancy jokes on april fool's day this is horrible i get it i, I understand those feelings but i don't so you know they haven't really helped me in season one, episode 27, Morgan describes what it was like being pregnant with both of her children in Kenya and Guinea, respectively. So for my youngest daughter, well, actually, both of my kids, I was pregnant overseas. My oldest daughter, it was in Kenya, and my youngest daughter was in Guinea. I went back to the U.S. to deliver, but I was abroad both times. The most recent 
one in Guinea was just such a interesting experience. Because I work with folks who support the healthcare system, I was sort of familiar with how the healthcare system worked. I know that the Ebola epidemic was really damaging to the health system in Guinea. And there were a lot of people who just sort of lost trust in the system. You had a lot of moms who may have had prenatal care needs, but they didn't want to go into a health facility because they were afraid that they may get Ebola. So you had a lot of people that just stopped going for routine things. And so we were there at a point where it was just starting to pick back up where people were increasing trust in the health system. But when I went for my first doctor's appointment, so we have an option to evacuate, like medical evacuation to another place, sometimes in South Africa, or you can go to UK or whatever, to just get your scans, etc. But it didn't really work well for us because we had a family with another child who was in school, my husband was working. And so I couldn't be like, okay, let's all just go to South Africa to do my scans. So I said, okay, I'll just go to a local health facility. And I remember someone told me like, this is the one to go to. This is the doctor, make an appointment. So I did all of that, but I actually remember going and I think we went at like 6.30 a.m. Like we were trying to get there super early, one, to beat the traffic, but two, just because we were told that there could be like long wait times. So we get there at like 6.30 a.m., put in our stuff with the receptionist and we sit down. I don't think that I actually was seen by anyone until like 3 p.m. And it was crazy because it was one of the earlier ultrasounds where like your bladder has to be really full. I was like drinking water so much trying to make sure I was ready for the scan. And it was like hours before anyone ever called me. And so at some point, I think probably by midday, I went to the front desk and I said, hey, like I see people who are coming in after us that are being seen before us. So I just want to make sure that we're on the list. Like, what's the deal? And they were like, oh, actually, you can bring your card in a day before and reserve your place. And so I was like, oh, I didn't know that. I thought I I just came super early to try to get my place. And they're like, yeah, all those people that came after you, they came yesterday and they put their name in the line. So that's why (laughs) you've been waiting for six hours and no one has seen you. And I was like, I wish somebody would have told me that because I could have stayed home. Um, So yeah, just interesting things like that where I was like, oh my goodness, I just spent the whole day at this facility like waiting to see someone. And yeah, it was just an interesting experience. In terms of the health facilities on this side, they're much better. I have had a couple of falls. I was running in town and I fell on a hill and I had to like go to the hospital. So I've experienced the health system here myself. And I will say that an interesting thing, especially from other Black colleagues, I think that there's this general perception that the health system is not, it's not ingrained with the same bias that there is in the United States. And so especially knowing the reproductive and maternal health outcomes for Black women in America, and that at the same health facility, a white woman and a Black woman have totally different outcomes, potentially. I think that's something that you don't feel as much. I think that here, I I remember when I went to the hospital in Kenya when I was pregnant with my first daughter, and I, I was new, and I was like, okay, like, what do I do? And 
I need vitamins and I need this and I needed that. And the lady was like, just eat like Sukuma Wiki, which is like collard greens and, and you'll be fine. And I was like, but wait, I don't need like this and this and this and this. And she was like, people have babies all the time. Relax. So I think those, there's definitely some cultural differences in the health system. The challenge that I had going back to the States, though, was that we don't necessarily go back until it's pretty close to the time that you're going to deliver. And the last thing that a doctor in the U.S. wants, especially because they're not wanting to deal with the litigious Americans, is to have someone who's like 36 weeks pregnant show up and be like, hi, I'm a new patient. <laughs> Because they're like, no, we don't want that kind of liability. We don't have any clue where you've been, what you're doing, et cetera. And so because I faced that with my first child, the second one, I was like, okay, halfway through, I'll go back to the States, I'll establish a doctor, and that's going to be great. I went back to the States, and every single doctor I saw was like, so you live where? And I'm like, oh, I'm in, in Guinea, West Africa. And they're like, oh don't they have malaria there? And I'm like, well, yeah, yeah. And they're like, don't they have Zika? And I'm like, I mean, sure. <laughs> and they're like, didn't they have Ebola? And I'm like, yes, yes to all of these, but what's your point? <laughs> and they're like, we don't want you as a patient because you're too high risk. And I was like, but people have babies in West Africa all the time. Like, what's up? So I think that was probably the biggest challenge is finding people who understood and I was lucky. I actually found a Nigerian American doctor, bless her, who was willing to take me, who understood that babies were had in West Africa all the time. But yeah, so many doctors were just like, no, you're a risk. No, you're a risk. Why would you get on a plane and fly for 15 hours? What's wrong with you? You're pregnant. Like, go sit home. In season one, episode 20, I spoke with Jesse in Strasbourg, France. And she shared what it was like being pregnant in France. When I found out I was pregnant, I was like, wow, because I kind of had a little freak out moment at the beginning because I was like, oh, like, will I be able to speak English in the delivery room? Will they just be speaking to me in French while I am in an altered state of just trying to give birth? And so those were a lot of questions that were running through my mind whenever I first found out I was pregnant. It was hard being away from family my grandfather, actually, he passed away while I was pregnant and I flew home and I did get to see my family and they got to see me pregnant and they were just like, wow, it was hard though, just being away because I had a complicated pregnancy. I have fibroid tumors, which makes it really difficult sometimes to have a non-high risk pregnancy. And I wasn't able to be as mobile as I wanted to be. I couldn't run all over Paris. I couldn't walk up and down the metro stairs as much as I wanted. It, it was a little hard being far away and going through this. But what I did find is that the French healthcare system I really was just amazed at how much they were following me. I didn't have anything in mind, but I was just so surprised at like, oh, like we see that you may have a high risk pregnancy. Like, let's do some tests. Let's do this. Let's do that. Like we need you in next week. Like I was just always going in and they were just following my pregnancy to a T and I was just very surprised by that. And what I learned is like, even if you're not high pregnancy, that they do have you coming in to the hospital where you're going to be giving birth. They have you coming in right away each month. They're just really 
following and just on it. So I do know about the statistic in the US where black women, we receive less proper healthcare, especially while pregnant. So that was something that was really concerning me. And I had been nervous about it. I was like, gosh, I really hope I receive proper health care and pregnancy care as a black woman. But I honestly, I felt overly taken care of. And that really just gave me confidence to finish out the pregnancy strong and uh, confidence really to go into that delivery room when it was time. In season one, episode seven, Star shares her story of having a baby in Hungary. Well, I never thought that my mother would not be in the delivery room when I had a child. It's just something I always, it wasn't a thought. But when I got pregnant here and realized that she has a job and she has a life and she only has this many weeks off for vacation, that was really hard dealing with that. But for me, it was about research and I'm a researcher. And I think what the moment you become pregnant or the moment you do something new in your life, like moving to a different country that you do become like a journalist in a way where you want to know all the information you can possibly have. So I spent a lot of time like on Facebook groups, reaching out to other expat moms. And that's how I found the expat mom community here, which is amazing Although we talk about the most ridiculous things, there's a ton of great information in there that we all want to know and need to know. So it's a great like resource for me and other expat moms that I meet, I always say, to join this group. But it was hard because my journey, I really wanted to be able to understand my medical journey <laughs> in Hungary. And so that meant having an English-speaking doctor. So I was able to find where the expats go. And I had an English speaking doctor, an OBGYN. I got to meet the pediatrician who's English speaking as well, who actually spent some time in America so she can understand my concerns when it came to vaccinations in America versus vaccinations in Hungary, blah, 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 blah. Just little things that I wanted to know and feel comfortable about. I think giving birth was a beautiful experience, but it was also a hard one. Because everyone was speaking English and everyone was telling me the process and we were going through it. But the moment there was a complication during my delivery, everyone literally switched to Hungarian. From there, just for them to communicate faster, I was okay with it because I understood that something was happening. And But it was definitely scarier to hear people speaking over me in Hungarian in a very harsh way. Because there was, you know, beeps were going off, things were wrong, da 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 and they were just like, and I was left out of the conversation, and it was about my body and my child in my body. Ultimately, I had a C-section, an emergency C-section, and the baby came out fine, and everyone switched back to English, and it was all good in the hood. But uh, yeah, definitely an experience. If you're an expat mom, what it's like, it's, it's nerve-wracking, it's scary, it's liberating, it's exciting. And I'm definitely proud to be able to say that I could have done that. I was talking to other expat moms. And when it comes down to doing anything in Hungary, no one goes about it in this. There's not step one, step two, step three, step four. It's literally everyone has starts with step four or three and then go to one. It's like no one has the same path is my point. So even with having a baby in Hungary, no one has the exact numbers. I will say that I went all private healthcare, all private doctors, the most expensive way possible, not because I have it, just just something that I felt comfortable with being new to a new country is just doing private, private, private. 
So out of pocket without insurance was $10,000 to deliver a child, which in America with insurance, $10,000 is nothing because having children can be up to like $20,000, $30,000, right? For one child. But then there's other moms that ha- went through the local healthcare and they had their child for virtually free. So, and then there's people that are in between who switched back and forth, did a little private, did a little state, did a little whatever. And so then people are at the 5,000 mark. So honestly, it's unfortunate to say there is no exact number or science when it comes to doing anything in Hungary. And I don't understand why that is. Even with getting your driver's license, one person has to go through it this way and another person goes through it this way and no one seems to cross paths with how to even switch over your driver's license, something as simple as that. So it's hard to navigate, but that's why we all just kind of lean on each other and take a deep breath and get through the best way we all can. In season one, episode two, Deanna was in Hong Kong with her husband and her two daughters. She described the difference between her first pregnancy and delivery in Atlanta and her second pregnancy and delivery in Hong Kong. I got pregnant the first time when I was 24, 3, 23, right after I got married. We ended up getting pregnant, which not part of the plan. So yeah, we got pregnant and we were like, well, I guess we're just going to be parents now. My pregnancy with Aria was sucky. It was awful. I was I had morning sickness for maybe seven months. So starting from like the moment I found out I was pregnant for about seven months straight, I had morning sickness, throwing up all over the place. And I am meanwhile losing weight like crazy. And so I can't like, <laughs> basically my body's not holding her up very well. And so, you know, I'm still going to work all every day. I'm still working full time. I had a lot of support from friends and family and I gave birth at Northside Hospital in Atlanta. And it's like, it's called like the baby factory because it's the most beautiful facilities to give birth in. And it's like, you get your own private room. It's huge. My husband was there the whole time. I got my epidural, but I was in labor for like 26 hours, which again, not ideal, but yeah, it was, that was awful. And then I went home and, you know, as, most mothers will do but not tell you about i was home crying in the middle of the night because i can't breastfeed properly and my daughter won't go to sleep because she's hungry or she's sleeping too much because she's hungry it was really really rough and that was with having like a support system around me and then it cost me like eight grand with insurance because america so like even having corporate health insurance it still costs us about eight thousand dollars to give birth to aria And then my second child, Malia, I had her in Hong Kong. Same wave of morning sickness. Fantastic. But this time I had it for all nine months, which is just just wonderful. So with Malia, you know, for transportation, we don't have a car here. Everything we do is usually public transportation or walking or something. So it was still a lot of walking, which was odd for me because you know I'm getting bigger and I'm nauseous but I have to walk and take buses everywhere so I I started fainting everywhere I fainted on the way home from work on a bus I think twice I fainted on the train twice I fainted at work once I fainted at home a few times I think the first time I fainted at work my coworkers like, no, you have to go to the hospital. And I'm like, well, I don't want to go to the hospital. Like, I don't know I can, if I can afford the hospital because I had never been to the hospital before then. You know, like, 
Because even in the States, I would think I can't afford the ambulance ride. It's a $500 taxi ride. Why would I do that? But here it's like, why would you not go? Of course you go to the hospital. Why would you not? And like the doctors would look at me and they'd be like, you're staying overnight, right? Like, why would you leave? It's going to cost you nothing. And so we look at the bill when we're done, you know, after taking the doctor's advice and we look at the bill and it's, it's a few hundred Hong Kong dollars and you're like, oh, that's it. It's nothing. It's my lunch money for the week, if that, you know, it's, it's one meal. My prenatal care was great. I was with some really great midwives and it was covered by my insurance, I think like 80%, which was great. And then for the birth, I ended up going public because we have a free public healthcare system here as long as you have a Hong Kong ID. So I was able to do the public system and it's based on your location. So I didn't get to choose my hospital per se. But so I just went to the closest one that had that had the facilities for it. And so fortunately, because I'm fainting and having a terrible pregnancy already, I am I was in the hospital maybe two or three times before I actually gave birth. So I got to kind of see what the hospital was going to be like anyway. Because it's public, you're in the same room with maybe five, like five people on each row. So like 10 other people in each room. And it's it's sectioned off by curtains. And so there's. You know, you hear other women moaning and groaning, but also it's the age of technology. So everyone else has headphones. You're enjoying your own media or reading books or doing whatever. So the hospital was pretty nice. The food was gross, but it's hospital food. And my midwives weren't allowed to be there because they didn't have, you know, they don't have privileges at the public hospitals. But they they had a class about giving birth at, in a public hospital, which was fantastic. Literally a room full of nurses and one doctor who were super sweet spoke English really well. So that was reassuring because I'm just like, I don't know how to explain to you in Cantonese that I'm miserable right now. But so yeah, they were just like super supportive. So Malia came out and she was the exact same weight as Aria, a little shorter. And then I stayed in the hospital for like three days. They gave me postnatal classes, like how to breastfeed again and doing physical therapy, like pelvic floor exercises and stretching and stuff like that. They had free classes for that available. And so I took a few of those. And some of them were in the middle of the night, which is great because, you know, you try to sleep in the baby sleeps, but the baby sleeps whenever they feel like it. And so they like run these classes in the middle of the night sometimes, which is just great because there are moms that are awake and we're doing it anyway. I got amazing service in Hong Kong giving birth to my child with like extra medications for like strep B and an epidural and the whole nine. And I paid a fraction. I paid it. I paid it on my octopus card. It's like a little card that we used to get on the train and to open our apartments and stuff because it has RFID. I paid for my hospital stay. So four days in the hospital on my octopus card. And they also gave me like vitamins and stuff to take home with me, all included. And so it really just doesn't make sense to me why the States has to cost so much when it's like everywhere else has the same equipment and is doing it and it's subsidized by the government and it's, you know, it's covered and you pay like a menial fee. It, it made me realize that like in the States, you know, we really boast about our high level of service and, you know, we're number one in this and this and this, and that's why it costs so much and it has to cost this much and blah, blah, blah. It was just like a really eye-opening experience of being a bit more disenchanted with the States. 
Hey everyone, I hope you're enjoying this episode of Flourish in the Foreign. And if you are, please consider supporting this podcast by buying me a coffee or purchasing an item off the podcast wish list on Buy Me a Coffee. So you can either go to buymeacoffee.com slash flourish foreign and buy me a coffee, or you can purchase an item off our wish list. Either way, thank you so much for listening to the podcast. Make sure you're subscribed and you left a review. And now on to the rest of the episode. In season two, episode seven, Victoria describes her dilemma on whether she should stay in Italy or move back to the U.S. when she found out she was pregnant. I mentioned earlier that I have very specific reasons for not wanting to live in the United States. Of course, some of those things are prejudice, racism, the the capitalistic kind of grind culture, things like that. But when I was making the decision, I was in the United States during the summer of my pregnancy for a few months and I was with my mom and I was I was looking at apartments. I was like trying to figure out, okay, could I kind of come back and restart my life again? And if I do that, then will I go back to Italy later? Like, how would that look? And so I started looking at practical things. So housing, of course, schools, of course. And then I started looking at healthcare and daycare, childcare. And I, I had a good uh, friend of mine. We were pregnant, a, a lady who lived here in my hometown, an Italian lady. We were pregnant at the same time. And so we would go on walks together and do our yoga class together and go to our prenatal classes together. And she would keep in touch with me while I was in the United States. And I would also reach out to her to ask her like little questions about just different things about healthcare, care and uh, child care. And uh, I remember understanding that, okay, I can get health care for my kid either through the system, which seemed like pure crap because I even, I even tried, like I tried to just do like a doctor's visit under this quote unquote system. And I'm like in a line and I had to fill out tons and tons of paperwork and it was really degrading. It's like you, you have to make less than a certain amount, but you can't make more than a certain amount just to get some help. And so it's like, okay, so I could get her health care under this welfare system, but I wouldn't necessarily qualify. And then I could also get her health care like under the work or benefits or whatever of her father, but I wouldn't be privy to that. It was very disjointed and it wasn't holistic in that it took in con- into consideration the whole family and, and the needs of the whole family, like the European system, national healthcare, universal healthcare, like that, that type of construct. And so one of the things that I learned early on when I first gave birth was how pivotal and how central and how important the healthcare of the mother is the child too but the healthcare and the mental healthcare of the mother is so important but so extremely neglected globally 
but especially in the United States, where you have to be able to afford those types of things. And if you can't afford it, it's such, like I said, a degrading hassle to go through to get the help that you need, to get the healthcare that you need. And so that was definitely one of those specific factors that led me to stay in Italy. But then the second one was childcare. I came to understand that childcare in the United States was basically the salary of one of the parents, almost. So I'm touring some of the facilities of different daycares and stuff because I'm like, okay, if I'm going to have her and I'm going to work, she's going to have to go to, to daycare. Okay, so let's go tour some facilities and see what this is about. So I toured different types of facilities and different neighborhoods, and it all ranged anywhere from $500 a month to $1,200 a month. And I was like, oh my gosh, like, so you have, you have to work in order to send them to, to daycare. And so I'm like putting like puzzle pieces together. And, and so I said, well, then why don't she just stay home? Well, you can't do that if you're a single parent. But so then I said, well, why aren't my married friends doing that? I was on this mission to understand. And so I was like interviewing my friends. Like, I want to ask you some questions. Okay. You and the hubby, y'all both work. Great jobs. Both of y'all have cars, beautiful house, and you got the kids. How much are you paying for daycare? And it was an astronomical amount. And I'm like, okay, so why are you paying that much when the kid could just stay home with you and you're saving money or maybe work part time or something like that and get your parents involved or, you know, just some sort of workaround. And the answer almost across the board was that they both had to work because they were in student debt and and they were having to repay loans. And so I'm like, oh my gosh. And I never did that because I paid for community college out of pocket or with grants. I never got loans. I never had that problem. So it, it's not even something that crossed my mind. And so I'm understanding even more why I didn't want to live in the United States because it just seemed like a money trap. So you go to school, you get the loans to go to school, you have the job to pay the loans, but now you have a kid who you have to send to a daycare that you also have to pay, which is the majority of your salary. It was just crazy to me. I reached out to my friend here and and I said, okay, so when the babies are born, what are you going to do? Are you going to stay home for a bit? She said, yeah, maybe the first six months or so, maybe the first year. I said, okay. I said, so what exactly are the childcare options like there? And she said, oh, well, the babies can start school as early as one year or so, school as in daycare, and they can go to the public daycare from morning to noon, completely free, or you can go to the private one when it's about 190 euros a month. And I was like, for what? (laughs) And she's like, for for full-time daycare, like 8 a.m. to 4 p.m. with food, quality childcare. And she said, yeah, and they will probably give you a discount because you're a single parent. So you may not even have to pay 190. She was like, when you get back, we can go on a tour. And I was like, oh my gosh, yes. So I got back, 
gave birth to my kid. I wasn't even thinking about daycares or whatever. But when she turned about one, one and a half, we did the tours together, me and my friend and her little boy and my little girl. And I mean, it's this beautiful facility and like an old church monastery and it's run by nuns, but they have the actual school teachers and it's literally $200 a month. And it's eight to four. And it's fantastic program. And it's completely Italian. They don't speak English, but I do. We do our own lessons and stuff at home. But she gets that culture. She gets that language. She's fluent. It's almost like her second mother tongue. And because I work here and I pay into the tax system, we have automatic access to healthcare. It's not linked to a job. It's just that you pay into the tax system. And even if you didn't, you would still, you could still qualify for healthcare. And I, I don't think about if she's sick, she's going to the hospital or she's going to her doctor. If I'm sick, I'm going too. It's not just her, it's me too. And her childcare is taken care of. And that frees up so much money and funds for me to be able to afford a nanny slash babysitter situation or to enroll her in extracurricular activities. All of that stemmed from even when I was pregnant, I was so nervous. Like I was like, okay, what do I do? And they said, okay, well, you've got your health card and you've got your residency and everything. So just go and pick out your doctor and you'll be good to go. You start going to your appointments. And I was like, okay, do I have to pay anything? And they were like, no. I was like, okay. (laughs) So I'm just nervous because I'm just thinking a bill is going to like come out of left field and punch me in the face. And so I'm going to my appointments and because I'm electing healthcare. If you're a resident here and you're working here, you're given. But if you're a temporary resident or a student, you elect to have uh, healthcare. And at the time I was under a student visa, I was electing to have healthcare. And only because I was electing to have healthcare did I have to pay for a couple of labs, blood work and stuff, and then some medication that I needed while I was pregnant. All of my doctor's visits were free. All of all of my checkups, my entire pregnancy, except for the times that I visited the United States and I stayed for a couple of months at a time, I had to pay $200 out of pocket because I didn't have uh, health insurance. One visit in the United States was the cost of my entire pregnancy in Italy. One doctor's visit. I remember having to get some iron pills and things like that during my pregnancy that my doctor prescribed. And I went to the pharmacy and I gave them the, the prescription and they said, oh, okay, okay, we'll get this for you. They got it for me. And they said, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. Like, is there anything you can do like where you don't have to pay for it? And I was like, oh my God, how much is it? And they was like, I was like, no, it's just, I just, I have to pay for it because I'm a foreigner and I I don't have a job here or whatever. And they said, well, all right, well, I'm so sorry, but okay, it's going to be 10 euros. And I was like, take my money. Like, what what are you doing? Take my, like, what? (laughs) Like, I was so scared. And when I went into labor, when I gave birth, I mean, the hospital situation is super primitive. It's not like a hotel suite or anything, but they get the baby out and they make sure the baby's healthy and they make sure you're healthy and they make sure you have all the information that you need for mental health and for uh, breastfeeding and for all the things that you need. And they send you home and it was completely free. 
And I was still kind of looking over my shoulder a couple of months after she was born, like, I know they're going to send me a bill. And they never did because they don't charge you for giving birth, you know, to a human being in Italy and in a lot of places. Whereas I know that that would have been thousands of dollars in the United States. And so I always look at that time in my life as a beautiful time because a lot of the stresses that I know I would have had, especially as an entrepreneur who didn't subscribe to like a healthcare plan or whatever in the United States, I didn't have those things in Italy. And it was a beautiful pregnancy because they really sort of revere pregnant women in Italy. And so I was... Bella Donna. I got priority in all the lines, the post office, the grocery store line, like wherever I was at, they would give me pomegranates like to, to bless me and the baby. And I mean, it was a really beautiful time, you know, in my life and a beautiful time to give birth. And my mother came, she came the last month and a half of my pregnancy and she was here for the birth. So I wasn't here alone. And I, I cherished that experience. And I, I, I did try to involve and incorporate other family members and my daughter's father, they weren't able to come. But as much as I could, I wanted to go to the States and and I've maintained that where I could go there and she can, you know, be with them. But I decided that Italy was where we needed to be because I knew that if I was going to take care of her, I needed to take care of me. And taking care of me and taking care of us in the States was going to be really, really difficult. Whereas I was already living in a place where it was really, really easy or relatively easier. In season two, episode two, Nafisa describes her experience being pregnant abroad. When I became a mom, I think that was also really important that I I, I needed to feel safe. I needed to nest. And even though I'm very used to moving, I didn't want to, and I really didn't want that for my kids. And I felt like I needed to to find a circle of confidence, a circle of trust. And I think for me, that very much evolved with motherhood and and living abroad. So I had my son in Virginia. We were living there temporarily. So he was born there. And then we ultimately moved to Angola after that. And then I got pregnant again while I was in Angola and we moved to South Africa so I could have her. And both cases, I had home births. So it's not, not something most people choose to do and certainly not on two continents. But again, if you understand anything about African-American women's maternal care in the United States, I think you'll understand for me, the value proposition was we will be better. We will be better served. We will be better treated. Our health will be in better conditions. And I felt like it was a holistic, appropriate answer for me, given the fact that I didn't necessarily trust the hospital system. I move around a lot, so I don't have a doctor that I love and trust that I've been working with for many, many years. So some of those things definitely come up and have come up for me personally. And I think some of the things that people will kind of consider to be like crunchy granola <laughs> type answers tend to be what I what I go to, but it's because it's the most self-sufficient because I'm not embedded in a society long enough to build trust with some of these service providers and experts that some people have had in their lives for decades because I don't have that. I often am looking for these smaller, hippy-dippy, holistic, green, green mom type communities because they are very welcoming and they are very accepting of people who have different ideas and who aren't already 
inculcated in one particular type of culture. And for me personally, it's looked one way. But I know that from all the people that I've talked to, the search for a better life is a register of wellness. And I think everybody who considers themselves a traveler can can really feel that, can really feel that narrative. In season one, episode 48, Maya shared her experience being pregnant in Paris. As I mentioned before, Maya and I recorded this interview many, many months ago. And at the time, she was very pregnant and just about to give birth. And she actually did give birth the day after our interview. And so during our interview, I asked her to tell me about her experience being pregnant in Paris, her impressions of the French healthcare system as a public health professional, but also how the COVID-19 pandemic affected her experience. It's been very interesting, I would say. I found out I was pregnant in January, so life was still normal. This was before COVID. I... It was a winter. I was feeling all the things. I was excited. I was anxious. I was like, oh, what, is this, what does this even look like? like? I've never been pregnant, period, yet alone pregnant in another country. Where do I start? How do I navigate things? I felt very overwhelmed. And so the first thing that my doctor was like, you need to do is, you know, figure out where you want to give birth and what provider you want to work with. So I really like my OBGYN, but the where she was affiliated as far as hospital was not convenient to where I live. So she was like, I think you should find another doctor. So I found a new doctor that was that basically works at a clinic, a private clinic near where I live. So that was like one of the big things that I need to figure out. Once I figured out the admin part, I just was going through all of the new bodily changes. I was super exhausted. I was working still at the time. And I just felt very unlike myself. I just felt like the hormones took over my body and I was just getting through the days. I know the healthcare system very well here just because of my experience studying public health here. And then I've used the healthcare system, I would say pretty, pretty extensively. For example, last year I had actually a surgery on my hip. So growing up, I did a lot of sports and ran track and field and I had a wear and tear issue with my hip that needed to be corrected. And so I had surgery last March. I basically spent three days at the hospital. And then I was um, on sick leave at home for one month of which I was on crutches that whole time. So I actually ended up having a nurse that was coming to my house every day to check on my wound and to give me these shots to help with preventing blood clots. So I was super happy with my experience at the hospital. My surgery went fine. And then I was just impressed by all the services that I got at home, which was practically free. Having a nurse come to my house every day, I had physical therapy. So I have never really been afraid of the the healthcare system here as far as giving birth. It was just a matter of figuring out what I had to do and how to navigate, how to get into the care that I needed and then keep up with all the prenatal appointments and things like that. So in general, I'm very happy with um, the healthcare system. When I was pregnant, one of the biggest 
things that I was thinking about in the beginning was, oh, what is the healthcare going to cost me? But then I forgot, don't worry, everything is integrated into the healthcare system and it's covered. So I have a friend that's actually pregnant in LA right now and we're nine months pregnant. She's due any day now too. And she's a freelancer and she basically is deciding to have a home birth and paying basically everything out of pocket just because she doesn't have, you know, the same sort of health insurance system as I do here. So I'm quite thankful for things like that. Prenatal care here is very well thought out and very comprehensive. So in the first trimester, you have to actually declare that you're pregnant to the social security healthcare system. So at 14 weeks, your doctor fills out this paper, letting them know you're pregnant. And that's basically so that you have access to all your prenatal visits. And then in France at six months, basically when you're six months pregnant, all of your care is 100% covered. And I remember getting a mail basically saying, congratulations, you're pregnant. We're going to be following closely throughout your pregnancy. They gave me a little calendar with all the milestones and things that I needed to uh, remember. So I was like super, I was super happy to receive that. I felt like I was taken care of. They know I'm pregnant and have all the resources that I need. So that's been really great. I just think that in general, this year has been full of lots of unknowns. So once March hit, COVID hit, things got a little bit complicated because I had so many hopes and things that I was looking forward to doing and during my pregnancy that just have gone out the window. For example, you have these birth preparation classes that are covered through the insurance that you have, the national insurance program, which are normally done in groups, of which for me, that was not the case. I had one-on-one birth preparation classes during the time of COVID, just one-on-one with a midwife through video conference, which was not ideal just because I think for me, I need to see people in person, just language-wise too. I think that it's harder to understand, especially technical information through video. And in general, I've been learning a whole new vocabulary in French related to pregnancy. So that was a bit of a bummer. I just imagine having these experiences like you see in the movies of going to these group prenatal birth preparation classes or Lamaze classes and meeting other pregnant women, but that wasn't the reality for me. And then also too, I was just really excited to take the advantage of the time that I wasn't working to go home and visit my family for them to see me while I was pregnant. So I'm pregnant. My parents aren't going to be able to come over for the birth. I wasn't able to go over there. Also, we're in the process of figuring out, so how are we going to manage you guys being able to see the baby? What does that look like? Are we going to FaceTime every day? How are we going to do holidays and things like that? So it's just been a lot of adaptation to this new situation with COVID. I'm happy that in France, things are getting a well, things are getting a little better. In the beginning of my pregnancy, my partner couldn't come with me to any of my appointments, so that was a bummer as well. All of these milestones, my first sonogram, he wasn't able to come with me. He didn't get to go with me to my monthly prenatal appointments up until maybe six months when things kind of reopened, he was able to come. So it's just been, it's been a lot dealing with pregnancy in general, and then dealing with the new safety measures because of COVID. I would say 
been lonely. You know, you've been confined. You're not having these interactions with your providers that you would have liked to or meeting other pregnant women. And then also just not being accompanied by your partner to your appointments. It's been it's been really hard, actually. But I'm thankful that right now where I'm at, I'm due any day now. At the moment, my partner is able to come. He's able to come to the hospital. He's able to stay there. I've been well taken care of as far as my providers. I've been able to kind of create a team that's quite holistic. So I have my OBGYN. I'm working with a midwife as well. I have a, I've been doing acupuncture. I've been doing appointments with an osteopath, which is kind of a, I would say kind of a chiropractor, but, but not really. They do manipulations of your body. Mine is specialized in pre and postnatal. So she's been really good in just making sure my hips are balanced and even and making sure my posture is good checking the position of the baby. Just I've been trying to be as holistic with my pregnancy in general and find providers that kind of align with that as well. In season two, episode nine, Lisa shares her story of being pregnant and delivering in China. I lived in Guangzhou. Guangzhou is one of the third largest cities. Uh, I think it's Beijing, then Shanghai, then Guangzhou. Now, when I moved to China, I then, quite frankly, I met someone who was sort of a rebound, I guess. I was newly divorced, whatever, and we decided to have a child together. There were some medical issues that kind of force that hand with me getting pregnant. I was in my 40s. And so the window of opportunity to conceive was becoming um, narrower. And so we decided to move forward with that. He's not Chinese. He's a European. And we were not married, not living together. We were in a, a relationship, but I later realized after my pregnancy that his availability was not what it had been presented to be. So having my daughter in a foreign country was interesting. That was far more interesting than getting married and getting divorced. (laughs) But I was fortunate again to be in a place where the one baby policy was still very much in play. It was only toward the end of my being there that they began to reconsider that and make concessions. But here I am, this older American woman, single, having a baby. And I was pretty much like put on a perpetual lily pad through the whole experience. I was taken good care of. And having a baby wherever you are can be challenging. I was just really happy to have a team of folks who I trusted and who their approach and values were in alignment with mine. And it was a great pregnancy, great birth, daughters thriving. Also, because being in China, I think, versus having, say, her in Japan, I was, as a single parent, able to hire help. And so I basically had a nanny. Now, nannies, IEs, they call them, which really is like a term for, like it means auntie, are pretty commonplace in Asia, but particularly in China, the auntie or the IE can be anywhere from a family member to someone who's not affiliated with your family that you hire from outside of, of your family, someone who comes in and who looks after 
your children, your house and home. I had a wonderful, I wonderful. And again, I was really, really lucky. This is just me not really knowing what I'm doing. <laughs> and at some points is going, oh, dear God, please let me find somebody who's bilingual, who I can feel good about leaving my child with, because I don't know how I'm going to do this otherwise. And she showed up and she became like family to us. But if that were not a part of that culture, then having her, particularly as a single parent, would not have been possible. The care in China was quite good with regard to being pregnant, birthing. It's more common in China, I think, to do C-sections. And what I found to be actually more challenging for me was having so many people, words in my ear, so many voices in my, in my head, mostly coming from other foreign women and like, oh, are you going to have a natural birth? Are you going to do it this way? Are you going to do it that way? Are you going to whatever? And are you going to breastfeed? Are you going to, there was just so much of like what I was, what are you going to do? How are you going to do it? You should do it this way and don't let them this and don't let them that. And I have to tell you that like, it was, it was just, my, and again, largely because of the context of the relationship that I was in, my biggest priority was, and, and still is, my daughter's safety. Just while I was pregnant, ensuring that I was healthy, that she was growing healthily, that, yeah, when it came to, to birthing, I was like, just get her out fine. <laughs> like, please, do I get points for having a natural birth? No? Okay. All right. I intended to, but it just, it, it, again, pointing back to some of those medical issues that prior to conceiving, and it was during the birth that they, they became more relevant. They weren't problematic during the pregnancy, but they showed up in concerning ways during the birth. So I had a C-section and I was fine with it. She was healthy. I was healthy. Let's move on. Other folks had issue with it, but but I kind of figured, well, that's, you have your own babies your own way. <laughs> didn't care. And I think that that's something I learned uh, or like a, a kind of aspect I fine tuned more so living abroad is that you're always going to have folks telling you what you should and could do. And a lot of it's going to be bureaucratic. You need to have your visa. You need to like change this. You've got 90 days to be here or you've got to modify that or like what you learning the laws and the social codes, just essentially navigating the social contract of kind of where you are as a woman, as a foreigner, as so many other things, right? As a worker that at some point you've got to cultivate a sense of good judgment discernment, decision-making, and really be careful and particular about who you have in your inner circle and who you have as part of your advisory kind of committee. Who do you talk to? Who do you go to for certain things? Having a, a good resource of, of help and, and support doesn't mean having a lot of people. It just means having the right people there. And I was fortunate to have the right people, people who weren't just going to tell me what I wanted to hear, 
the people who through their experience and through their values and their knowledge or whatever were going to guide me and or support me as as needed. Ultimately, there were choices that I needed to make and that I needed to then own. I got very good at being my own counsel. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Flourish in the Foreign. If you enjoyed this episode and if you want to see more episodes like this, be sure to let me know. Slide in my DMs or go to flourishintheforeign.com and send me a message via the contact page. I'd love to hear from you. So what is Move Abroad with Intention course? Well, there are two versions of the course. There is a self-study course and there is a live version course, okay? The self-study course is a five-week self-study course with pre-recorded material and curriculum that you'll have access immediately. So once you purchase the course, you have that material and you will be walked through crafting your unique vision of a life well-lived abroad to country selection, to employment and money management, preparing to leave arriving and landing, making community, and preparing to stay long-term and repatriating. It is an all-encompassing five-week course with a complimentary Move Abroad with Intention guide, which I believe is just essential and is really foundational of the course. Now, what else do you get with this self-study course? You get access to the Move Abroad with Intention course community. So you'll be able to make friends with people who are like-minded and who are preparing to move abroad as well. You'll also have access to monthly office hours with me, where I will chat about whatever you guys want to chat about in that hour. Now, the self-study course is available all the time. You can purchase it and start it at any time. And it's really great if you are unsure of your schedule, if you need that extra time, because also you don't have to do it in five weeks. You can do it as long as you want to. And you'll have that resource to help you prepare for not only a move abroad, right? But a sustainable move abroad, a move that's going to be the beginning of a new chapter of a life well lived for you. Okay. Now, if you're interested in the live version of the Move Abroad Intention course, listen up. So the live version of this course is not available year round. It will only be available certain times of the year. And if you're interested in it, I highly suggest you be signed up for the Flourish the Foreign newsletter because that's when I will be letting everyone know when the live course is available for sign up. So the difference between the self-course and the live course is that this is a live course, right? It is going to be with me. It is five weeks of live discussion with me and the rest of the cohort. You still have access to the pre-recorded curriculum. You still have access to the community. So you get to make friends and do all those things. And of course, you'll still be invited to the monthly office hours. The major difference is that if you are looking for some accountability, And if you want to chat with me live on a weekly basis for five weeks, this is the version for you. It really comes down to you knowing yourself, how you research, and how much accountability you need. And if you want to do it live and if you want to chat with me, 
That's totally fine. The truth is, is that moving abroad is a hassle. It just is. I know that a lot of people don't want to hear that, but I know that a lot of people, maybe you included, also have a deep fear of failing abroad, meaning you move abroad, you hate it, you don't make friends, you go broke, you have to come home with your tail between your legs. Like a lot of people have that fear. And I think they have that fear because they're not moving abroad with deep intentionality. Deep intentionality means knowing yourself and knowing what you truly desire and require in this next chapter of your life and being honest with yourself. And moving abroad with intention cores will help you build that foundation for a sustainable move abroad. At the end of this course, if you do the homework... You have a thick binder of research uniquely crafted for you and your life that will be the guiding star for you in this move abroad. Now, if this sounds like something you're interested in, I encourage you to sign up for Move Abroad with Intention course, either self-study or live version now. I hope to see you soon. And as always, thanks to Zach Higgs for producing the music of this podcast. I appreciate you, sir. And remember, it is not about moving abroad. It's not about being abroad. It's about flourishing abroad. So go abroad and cultivate a life well lived. See you next time. Bye. On the next episode of Flourish in the Foreign. I think raising my children abroad was the best decision I I made for them. My only regret is that they weren't able to grow up um, immediate family or extended immediate uncles cousins all of that because i had that experience where i grew up with my cousins like we were siblings so as a nuclear family i think it it, it forced us to be much closer but i wish that they also had those links as well where they feel like their cousins have a really good understanding of what they're going through or that they have inside jokes things that they lived through together or memories that they they could have had together